This is CN Times Live. The details of our complete range of programs goes to cntimeslive.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to the latest global news recorded at half past midnight on Sunday, 22nd of December. I'm Sarah Garsley, bringing you a selection of highlights from across CN Times service news today. Coming up, President Putin has freed his one-time rival, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, on humanitarian ground. Also in this podcast, we'll see what happened during the students' protest in London these previous weeks. We'll hear from the president of the University of London Student Union, Michael Chesson. And... A unos kilómetros de la frontera, entre Sonora y Arizona, hay un pueblo llamado Altar. To celebrate International Migrants' Day, we'll hear from Mark Silver, film director of Who is the Yanni Crystal? A story about Mexican migrants and the danger they face every day to live a better life. But first, the former tycoon Michael Khodorkovsky has left Russia after being freed from prison by President Vladimir Putin. In a telephone call to Russian television, Mr. Khodorkovsky, lawyer, confirmed his client has now left a remote prison in the Karelia region of northwestern Russia, early on Friday afternoon after 10 years behind bars. Mr. Khodorkovsky used to be Putin's biggest political rival, but now he says he won't return to the political fray. The former old tycoon talks publicly about his release from prison at a Berlin news conference, saying he will stay out of politics and that the struggle for power is not for me. We hear from him through the BBC News coverage. I do not want to be seen as a symbol, a symbol for a particular situation. And I want, don't want to see my personality ignoring the fact that there are still prisoners. See me as an, an attempt of uh, NGOs, because what has been done has led to a release, and the release of somebody where nobody expected that release, because it seems so very improbable. It is something where we will all need to work in the future to make sure that in Russia and any other countries in the world there are no political prisoners. At the very least, I am going to do everything possible, all I can do. I believe that there are many people who wanted to ask me what my plans are, what the future is, and maybe it sounds odd. Well, perhaps it doesn't sound all that odd, given the rapid change of events. It was only 36 hours ago that I regained my freedom. And in that period, I couldn't make plans for the future. I think it's too short a time to do anything like that. The most important thing for a former prison inmate, something which sort of nurtures us, is hope. The hope that ultimately you don't have to go through what happened. Ultimately, there will be hope for release. That's what we all live on. And in the future, I need to talk to all my friends and acquaintances about this. I will do this. I will try and explore what roads will be traveled in the future. Khodorkovsky had been in prison since 2003 and was due to be released next August by requested a pardon because his mother is suffering from cancer.
President Vladimir Putin surprised Russians last week by agreeing to the pardon when the Sochi 2014 Winter Olympics is to be held at the start of February. On Wednesday, thousands of students from across the country took part in the Cups of Campus demonstration in London to protest against heavy police presence on campuses and the brutal way in which police broke up a peaceful protest at the University of London on the 4th of December, Russell Square. I spoke to the president of the University of London Union, Michael Shesson, to discuss the reasons of the protest and the outburst of violence between the police and the students. So, Michael, the university released a statement claiming they did not call the police. Yeah, that's, a, that's definitely a lie. Um, <laughs> basically, the, um, they, they, they definitely called the police. The police would never normally attend a situation like that. The only way that the police would attend um, is if there was a court injunction, um, and in which case there would normally be a day's notice anyway, uh, or two days' notice. Um, um, or if um, the university called them in, um, claiming that something criminal had happened. I think probably what happened was that the university called the police in, claiming that um, they had fears for their staff safety, um, because the, the university were tweeting a lot around. Basically, the, the trust between, you know, there's never been very much trust between police and student protesters, but I think the, um, I think all of that has evaporated. What we've seen over the last few weeks is sort of mass arrests. Uh, 41 people were arrested uh, over two days, um, mm -hmm. and the level of police violence that, that was there was unlike anything I've ever seen on a campus. I mean, obviously I've seen it on demonstrations, but it was this, this idea of encroaching onto campus. Um, Cops off campus, is Cops off campus just about hating police? Uh, yes and no. I think certainly a lot of people don't like the police, um, but I think more importantly what this is about is about who controls campus and what, what Mm. You know what, what? What kind of what kind of regime do we want on campus? Um, and the police really are doing the work of management. So I suppose that's really what's going on here. Oh. Now, about you know fears for you know staff trapped. There, there were no staff trapped inside. The occupiers handed around notices saying you are free to leave. Um, so yeah, it was definitely the university called the police. In. No other thing could have happened. What are you trying to achieve? with this mass protests? I mean, I suppose what we're trying to achieve is a... We are trying to... Well, we, we are fighting for a, a, a different vision of public democratic education um, that is free from exploitation and police violence um, on campus. Um, mm -hmm. So I think this latest round of protest is, is largely based around... Broadly speaking, I think it's based around anti-privatisation. So I think the what you're seeing in London, in Sussex, and across the country is a thing based around um, uh, workers' fights. So they're basically localised and, and indeed national at the moment strike action um, around paying conditions and around outsourcing. The simplest way to characterise it is an anti-privatisation movement. That was Michael Shissom speaking, and in response, I called the Metropolitan Police, who said... If the Metropolitan Police Service will always seek to facilitate peaceful protest, uh, what we have to balance is the competing rights of people to demonstrate and of those people who wish to go about their daily business. Uh, the, um, the Metropolitan Police 
has released 1,937 events so far this year, the vast majority of which passed off without issue or even attracting media interest. Um, the MPS expects its officers and staff to behave professionally, ethically, and with the utmost integrity at all times, and this is, of course, uh, including during the policing of protests. Allegations and complaints made against our staff are fully assessed and investigated, and officers are aware that they will be held to account in this way. This is important for the confidence of the public and our officers. When asked about their presence uh, on the former protests on the 4th of December at Russell Square, they said... In response to your question, who, who initially called police to Russell Square on Thursday, um, and a small number of officers were working with the staff at the university on Thursday, this is last Thursday presumably, following the disturbance on Wednesday the 4th of December, the officers became aware of a large group of up to 300 people who had gathered and were making their way along Mallet Street. Some had their faces covered, covered. others were carrying homemade shields, smoke bombs and other unknown objects were thrown at police. Further officers were then deployed to the scene. The national campaign against fees and cuts, mostly promoted by students, are calling for a demonstration in London on the 22nd of January 2014. For more information, go to anticuts.com or on Twitter with hashtag CupsOfCampus or hashtag Occupyish. Last Wednesday was International Migrants Day and millions still faces challenges to cross borders to try to live better lives. The Migrants' Rights Network launched a special film screening of a recent Sundance Film Festival award winner. Who is Diane Crystal for the International Migrants' Day? The film retraced the story of an anonymous body found in the desert of Arizona and shows the sad truth of immigration and cheap labour unveiling a real-life human drama. The filmmaker, Mark Silver, worked with the famous Mexican film actor and director Gael Garcia Bernal, and when I met Mark Silver during the International Migrants' Day in London, where his harrowing documentary Who is Diane Crystal was screened, I asked for an explanation. So um, uh, I'm with Mike Silver, the film director of uh, Who Is Diana Crystal. Uh, so how are you? Very well, thank you. <laughs> Very good. Um, so um, today is International uh, Migrants Day. Yeah. Um, as you see, it's, um, the migration problem and the border problem is really current. Yeah. Uh, Lampedusa, a tragedy. Um, the um, you know the, the turmoil uh, of some countries in the Middle East. So I would first like to know where, where did you get the concept? Um, so originally uh, we launched a website that asked people to send in stories about all those issues, about division between rich and poor, um, economic policy, barriers, walls, etc, etc. Um, and one of the stories that resonated with us was this, this uh, image actually of a skull on the floor of a desert. And then from there we, we started asking what could that skull reveal to you about the world well, and also in the fact that it's anonymous and during during the course of the film we might be able to humanize that person who's essentially nameless uh, was a great metaphor for what needs to happen anyway with the kind of icons of illegal and immigrant and all these things which are dehumanizing so in the process of discovering skeletons and dead bodies we're rehumanizing real people but what's what's the main reason you did this <laughs> you did the film the main reason. Um, the main reason. To, to, <laughs> um, 
or maybe many reasons. Uh, I mean, I mean, I've always done work that's. Um, I've always been interested in the construction of fear, the construction of the other, the um, kind of false divisions that that I feel like religion and nationality uh, put on you as a as a more sort of animalistic human. Um, and and this felt like a very strong way of playing with some of those concepts. And uh, about the Honduras government, do you work yeah. with them? Did they see the film? Or how, how, what's yeah, so the Honduran government were fantastic, actually. And they, um, once we knew that that particular person was from Honduras, um, they facilitated and helped us uh, with access to the airport um, as the body was going onto the plane in Arizona. And then when the body lands in Honduras, they sorted out all the airport access there. They liaised with the family to explain what we were doing and just checking it was okay with them um, and now we're actually we've shown the Honduran ambassador in, in Washington who is now going to host a screening of other Central American country ambassadors and we're also discussing with them how they could use the film to show teenagers in Honduras about the dangers of the journey and the risks involved and stuff so yeah it's good I, I'm really pleased with our sort of relationship with the Honduran government yeah, yeah. but how, how did you get um, Gael Garcia in, yeah. in the film um, so involved with the production we, we, uh, we met him uh, a couple of years before we had this particular idea and we were talking about idea, uh, making a film about resistance in general um, and he was like yeah cool keep in touch da, da, da. Uh, and we did a little bit of work around that and then subsequently I was making these films for Amnesty with him about the journey through Mexico and that bound everything together. Uh, so yeah, so we, we discussed it previous to the idea and then um, through this relationship with Amnesty and making the journey uh, just the Mexico part of the journey, it kind of secured Gael and helped him understand what type of journey migrants make and then the footsteps he would have to follow in for this bigger film. And what's your perspective now that you see back the film? I mean, I'm happy with the film. Obviously, I'm never going to be, you know, there's always things I want to change yeah, and yeah. it's not quite good enough and all that. But I mean, generally, I think it really, it does what it needs to do. Um, but what it's really made me realise is that you can work four or five years on a film and it's really just the beginning because it's now about how that film will be used yeah. and the network surrounding it and all of that. And that's like another three or four years' work. Um, but that's, you know, if you want to make a film that actually is useful to people to change stuff. Like that. But how do you want the viewer, like us, uh, to, to take away um, what we see, the film that you show, um, show us? Well, in the smallest way, I think it's... Um, I mean, maybe not here, but in the US, um, that you might, when you go home and look at your cleaner or your gardener or the person that serves you coffee or the person in the restaurant, you might, you know, see them and see them, but then see this, like, potential mm. backstory that brought them to your kind of paths crossing in life. Well, that's it from us for now. But there'll be an updated version of the podcast available to download um, for next week on the website cntimeslife.com. I'm Sarah Garsley. Until next time, thank you.